Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I want to tell you about a podcast that's a new sponsor here for Deep State Radio. We'd like to welcome aboard. It's called The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone or maybe even multiple someones will end up being. Every day at five o'clock Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins will catch you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what the polls are saying, what the latest developments are. It's a, it's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your browser 12 times a day like I do. And that's an underestimate for me. I, I, I go too often to the browser. I think I may need some therapy to break out of that once Trump is out of office. It's like uh, TLDR as a service for those of you who are not, you know, social media conversant, you know, that TLDR means too long, uh, didn't read. And uh, the idea is to summarize what's going on quickly, but to give you what you need to know this election season. So if you want to catch up on what you've missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from an Adirondack chair somewhere overlooking the ocean with an iced coffee in her hand, is Rosa Brooks taking a break from working on her latest magnum opus. Um, uh, Thank you for taking the break, Rosa. I'm glad to be here. When when I'm writing, I, I can't be outside in my Adirondack chair because there's too much glare on my keyboard. So this gives me an excuse to actually go outdoors. You know, <laughs> I try this. I have like a little sort of patio out here in New York and there's like flowers and trees and stuff. And so I think I'm going to go out there and write. And it always lasts 10 minutes. I, I, I can't. The place. That's on the other side. That's... Uh. I have a, so that's a little, the problem. A little patio and a pizza place. But the patio faces the back towards a sort of tree-lined courtyard thing. But I just find I can't work out there. Uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., also, I think, we have Corey Shockey. Are you in Washington, <laughs> D.C., Corey Shockey? Indeed, I am in Washington. And it's nice to be back in our sweet provincial country. Even though, and and we welcome you back by it being the first day of fall and it's like 93 degrees in Washington, right? Which is exactly the kind of Indian summer I've come home for. Um, well, 
uh, then 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 we're glad to provide for that. And um, finally, last but not least, we also have with us uh, Max Bergman of the Center for American Progress, host of the uh, widely listened to Asset, the Asset podcast. Um, and uh, welcome, Max. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, by the way, I, guys, I collectively, this is a little bit of, you know, a, a sort of brag, humble brag, I don't know, but but I, I, I am completely zonked. I got zero hours of sleep last night because my what oldest- What were you doing? My oldest daughter won an Emmy Award. Oh my God, what? fantastic. That's amazing. As a writer for uh, Last Week Tonight for John Oliver. And so I sat up and of course the whole day was absolute torture. Um, I didn't want to tell her that, but you know, it's like, it's like every like audition your kid has ever gone to or baseball or soccer game they played in or whatever. It's just hugely anxious because even though she would have been able to handle if they didn't win, I wouldn't have. And then, and, and then she won and that's that was so just, exciting. Yeah, no, it was in freaky. And and I was lying in bed at like four in the morning, you know, like searching the internet for more pictures of John Oliver's writers walking off stage. It, it's pathetic, I admit it. But uh, <laughs> no, you're her dad. It's not pathetic. It's wonderful. that's a good reason to stay up late. It's a very good reason to stay up late. Yeah, it's true. And other daughter was also there because her boyfriend roommate, um, is a producer for the Stephen Colbert show, which unfortunately was beaten by the John Oliver show. So that's a whole other drama. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's Can why your I... daughter write for write scripts for Deep State Radio? That's what we need. We need a little bit of Emmy, Emmy magic dust over yeah, here. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, th you know, I, 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 th I think that this, this, um, facade that we give the audience that we're actually speaking spontaneously is working just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are always shocked when I tell them that we don't know ahead of time uh, what the conversation is going to be because you want it to be like a dinner table conversation. Exactly. Uh, which is what it actually sounds like. The trouble is that sometimes that means that David asks me a question and I say things like, I have no idea what you're talking about, David. <laughs> right. Or, or, or food falls out of your mouth. But right. yes, exactly. Exa exa exactly. Well, you, I think everybody knows what I'm going to talk about right now. And that is, you know, we have the latest, oh my God, it's a watershed. It's going to change uh, how we view the Trump administration. Impeachment is near. Um, Nancy Pelosi is saying, now I'm really serious. Now we're really going to consider considering to consider whether or not to consider whether or not to seriously consider ramping up our investigation. Exactly. <laughs> the special, the, 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 the House, you know, select committee on hand wringing has convened themselves. And <laughs> special hearing. <laughs> they've convened a special hearing where they will wring their hands in unison. But, um, but I, but you know, this is a foreign policy issue, right? The president of the United States called up the new-ish uh, president of Ukraine and apparently, sort of said, "Well, if you want our aid, then you know, go after this guy Biden." And so I just thought, let's, you know, every everywhere you go, it's like this is a big watershed. Um, but is it, Corey? 
Uh, I think it's too soon to tell whether it's a big watershed. It should be a big watershed. The, uh, the elected commander in chief using the spoils of his office for partisan political advantage in the coming election. This is the kind of one man, one vote, one time thing we scold countries in transition to democracy about or countries that are authoritarian about. So it should be a big deal. Um, I, however, stopped counting at 17 the number of things I thought ought to bring an end to President Trump's candidacy and then his presidency uh, that have not. And as Rosa pointed out, it's not just Republicans in the Senate, although they deserve the most castigation, uh, but also Democrats in the House being unwilling to use the uh, constitutional levers available to them to provide oversight. Um, so Max, you guys have um, been following this kind of thing. And you know, one thing that strikes one about this Ukraine story is it's just like the Russia story, right? You know, the president at reaching out to a foreign leader to get him help with domestic political um, issues. Do you think it's just additive, or do you think it's different and potentially a watershed in some way? Well, I think it's potentially a watershed, but I don't think it's necessarily about the the current scandal. It is about whether Democrats choose to make this a watershed. I think the press are in the public are clearly reacting to it the way they should react to it. Oh my God, how could this stand? But the reaction also wasn't all that different to the Mueller report when it first came out. People were referring to it as an impeachment referral. And I think what we sort of, you know, in, in, you know, the public isn't they're sort of observing or, or you know, uh, observing what's happening in Washington and all the scandals. And they're sort of like, come and, come and wake me up when there's something real. And they're, what they're looking for are, is political signaling. So after the Mueller report came out, the Democratic response was essentially, well, we're going to, we need more investigation. Not that this is it. It's that we need more, we need more, we need more. And so the public was like, oh, I guess there was nothing there. And what we have here is I think the big question this week is, is this the moment where Democrats finally say enough, like we have it, you know, we have Trump saying he did it. We have Rudy Giuliani saying he did it. And then we have all the obstruction you know, about uh, withholding the transcript, withholding the complaint, clearly indicating that he did it. Have we crossed a line in which Democrats will finally stand up and say, yes, he did it. And that is where I think the watershed has to come from it. That's when the public will sort of take notice and say, oh, this is actually a different situation, a different, puts us on a different plane. And if not, if it's sort of, well, we're going to have a fight over getting the complaint, which is going to go to court and the Supreme Court will then potentially rule on this in 2025, then I think we sort of go back to, it's just another scandal. So I think that's why the focus is on Nancy Pelosi, on House Democrats, on what they're going to do right now. So, Rosa, I, I don't mean to spoil your time there in the Adirondack chair with the iced coffee, but rain on Max's parade a little bit. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want to rain on Max's parade. That would be mean. <laughs> yeah, but, but I just don't want him to be disappointed. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I the primary source of rain clouds is really what Corey has already said, which is that uh, we've had so many moments where everybody thought, okay, this is it. This is so outrageous. Can't continue. You know, things must change, and then things didn't change. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I, I hope Max is right, um, but I am not all that sanguine. Um, that that being said, you know, the, the most important thing um, is really, at the end of the day, not what the House Democrats do or the Republicans in the Senate do. It's what the American voters do uh, in November of 2020. So I, I think that's where I'm going to put my hopes, uh, not so much in either either congressional investigation processes or, or litigation. Um, by the way, I just want to say, because I, I, I think it's important that we're like fully transparent to all of our listeners out there who join us every week. But Corey, what did you but think of the picture? Dog. What No, what did you think of the... No, it's, it's Rosa's dog. What did you think of the picture? That is my dog. That Rosa <laughs> just sent us of her vista as she's gout gazing at the water. <laughs> just, just to, to torture it us. Is, we're we're like combing Twitter screens to try to be... <laughs> for the deep state nerds listening to this that I challenged Rosa that unless she sent us a picture of her dreamy uh, writer's retreat I wasn't going to believe it I was going to believe she was in the silo um, <laughs> and, and she sent a picture that I am envious of it looks gorgeous Rosa and I hope you write well there thank you Corey yeah, no, you should start and writing. That, that was book. my dog. That was my dog who is uh, uh, has to make sure that no geese um, come anywhere near us and barks like crazy every now and then. So, so well, here in the eastern shore, we are on high alert. <laughs> Another kind of Canadian invasion. Those Canadians, I mean the geese, are up to no yeah. good. Um, so, so is there anything about this that we don't know that we might know that could change the nature of it, Corey? So, for example, this all sort of happened in August, but also what happened in August was that the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, um, was uh, sort of let go, and so was his deputy, Sue Gordon, uh, just as the inspector general of the um, director of national intelligence was looking into this whistleblower report. Um, so if we found out that they were let go because of this, that might be an interesting twist. Um, if we found out that um, uh, there were, you know, in, in improper efforts to quash this by the DOJ, that might be. Um, you know, is there something you that know could the one thing that would I so it's a really good question, David. The one thing that would that would feel like it materially changed the case for me uh, is if the president, after having raised the issue with the president of Ukraine, held off on. Uh, releasing congressionally appropriated funds to Ukraine, uh, right? So the the 
Congress authorized and appropriated the money. It was a surprise in July that the administration hadn't released the money. If a connection were made between if the president gave any instruction that that money not be released until we see what happens, what the president of Ukraine does about what I raised with him on the telephone, uh, that's, that, it seems to me, is a smoking gun of, of political blackmail. Well, yes, yeah. that, that might be. Max, do you, do you have a thought on that or, or yeah. other twists in this saga? Yeah, so the Ukraine security assistance is something, actually, when I was in government and State Department, that was sort of the area of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs where I focused on. And I think the timeline here is now pretty clear. Um, there was a hold put on the security assistance funding, the $250 million to Ukraine, uh, which is, you know, vital assistance to a country in the midst of fighting a war, which has killed, I think, around 80 people this year, 80, or 80 Ukrainian soldiers this year. And that hold was put on before the call with Zelensky, the president of, U uh, of Ukraine, on, the, on July 25th. And then it was held throughout August, in which then Giuliani was uh, following up with, with further meetings. And so I think the quid pro, I think there's sort of two issues. There's one, the potential quid pro quo, which by putting a hold on the assistance is simply sort of, Trump doesn't even have to mention it. It's known that uh, by the Ukrainians that this is, you know, they need to get this money. Um, and Trump is then bringing up the fact that they want uh, to investigate uh, uh, Biden's son eight times. And so that's number one, is the, is the extortion effectively. But then the second area is that he's asking a foreign government to gin up charges and investigate an American citizen for his own political advantage. And that part is just Trump just admitted to it. And so I think we keep looking for more when we kind of have it. And we we then get sort of stuck in always sort of pursuing more information, more information, as opposed to, I think, you know, there's enough known here. Obviously, you know, if you move down an impeachment path, you'd want to get all the transcripts. But I think it's about indicating uh, how unacceptable this is to essentially extort a foreign government for your own political advantage is something that I think is just like completely unfathomable. Um, or it's fathomable in the Trump era. And so the question then is, you know, do Democrats sort of change off their muddled posture in the House, which is sort of like we're kind of in an impeachy process. We weren't going to fully call it an impeachment inquiry. And that's where, you know, there hasn't been a full vote in the in the House uh, as there was in Watergate to begin an impeachment inquiry. We're going to call them impeach-ish proceedings. Impeach-ish proceedings. And maybe it's time to just, you know, move forward with impeachment proceedings and to have the House indicate that it believes that that needs to happen, as as occurred in Watergate, I think it was in February of 74. So on each episode of Deep State Radio, you listen to us talk about some subjects over and over again. Some of them are, you know, what's going on in the world, you know, what how, how things got this bad. Some of them are challenges that all of us face in trying to keep up with those issues, like where do I find insights I can trust? Where do I find... Uh, voices that have unique uh, perspectives that I need to have? Where can I find uh, things to read that are actually worth my time? And uh, I wouldn't suggest many places to go for that. Uh, it's kind of an information desert out there, despite the fact that there's so much of it. 
But one place that I recommend without reservation is The New Yorker. Uh, you probably already know The New Yorker represents the best writing in the country today. Uh, there are great writers, but there is also great reporting. There is meticulous fact-checking. There is in-depth exploration of ideas in a way that you just can't find it anywhere else. And you find it in all areas, whether it's politics or the arts or fiction or food or humor, or international affairs, every, every place. Uh, there, there, the great writers there, people like uh, Evan Osnos, who's, I, I think, one of the world's leading experts on on China. Susan Glasser, who writes for them about D.C. John Cassidy, covering politics and economics. Um, uh, Emily Nussbaum, the television critic, and on and on. And you know, you can get The New Yorker, twelve weeks for just. $6. That's half the price that it normally comes. And home delivery of the print edition and unlimited access to the newyorker.com um, with 10 to 15 stories that are only on the site every day, access to apps and all of that. Um, and you can get it because you listen to Deep State Radio. All you have to do is go to newyorker.com slash deep state, all one word, uh, and you'll save 50% just by entering the words deep state. Uh, so go to newyorker.com slash deep state and get the invaluable resource every day, every week that is the New Yorker. Well, um, that, you know, that could happen. There's no evidence that, I mean, look, if the president was accused of rape. That didn't seem to do it. He was accused of sexual abuse by 24 women. That didn't do it. He was identified as a uh, a co-defendant in a in a case felony case and campaign finance that didn't seem to do it uh, Mueller identified 10 different instances of obstruction of justice that didn't seem to do it um, uh, his, you know he was handing out uh, security clearances without proper uh, process like they were candy that didn't seem to do it. He has conflicts of interest. His sons have conflicts of interest. His daughters have conflicts of interest. He, he's, he's using the presidency like a piggy bank and, and, and selling, you know, uh, 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 hotel rooms that he benefits from and, you know, all sorts of other kinds of things to, in violation of both the domestic and the foreign emoluments clauses in the Constitution. That didn't seem to do it. I just personally, Rosa, find it a little bit humorous. That, you know, the Democrats are like Charlie Brown and the football. You know, Lucy puts down the football. Charlie Brown goes, OK, this is the time that we're going to do it. And every single time Lucy lifts up the football. And and Trump not only does that, but he does it in a way that all of his followers end up thinking that he's the wronged party because there is no consequence. And the Democrats think they're being cautious. But what they're actually doing is sending a message to Republicans who jump on lies and would prosecute on the basis of them, that this must be complete nonsense. And and I, and I will just quote you because you're looking out at the water and I'm looking at the, the Twitter feed. Trump had a, a media availability with the Polish president here in New York today, and he, he you know continued to go with, you know the 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 message that everything he did was not only right, but it made sense. And he said, if a Republican ever did what Joe Biden did, 
they'd be getting the electric chair right now. And then he called every journalist in the room crooked as hell. <laughs> it's so sweet, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats overlearned the lesson of the Bill, Cl Bill Clinton impeachment um, when, you know, the Republicans went after Clinton uh, for something that originated in what most people saw as disreputable, gross, revolting, but not a major league political crime, e.g. his affair with Monica Lewinsky and his subsequent attempts to cover that up. Um, and, and what ended up happening, as, as you all know, is that eventually it ended up seeming like Republican overreaching and Clinton, Clinton, even though many Democrats were totally grossed out by his behavior, uh, started seeming like he was just a martyr to, as, as Hillary Clinton put it at the time, a, a vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, and in fact, people ended up rallying around Clinton. His popularity increased. Uh, uh, he, you know, and it hurt the Republican Party. Uh, it hurt their image. And, and I think that the generation of Democratic Party leaders, who, you know, typified by Nancy Pelosi, um, really took that to heart. And their takeaway was, oh, no, no, impeachment proceedings will bounce back on the party that pursues them. It's a mistake. Americans hate impeachment proceedings. They'll just start feeling sorry for whoever is under the microscope, whichever president is under the microscope. So we better not do that. And, and I think that that's just uh, it's just mistaken to draw that conclusion and apply it to today's politics for all kinds of reasons. One simply being that, you know, there's been a massive generational shift. Uh, the majority of American voters now are not really thinking about the Clinton impeachment. They don't know anything about it. They weren't. They don't remember it. They were too young. Um, another being that our our politics are just far more divided now than they were then, and the likelihood that anybody is there to budge one way or the other uh, is pretty minimal. And 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 I think the third issue, and obviously the most important issue, and one that we've talked about a lot, is that. Uh, Whatever you think about Bill Clinton, the sort of the underlying offenses that Clinton was accused of were much more minor than the the underlying offenses uh, relating to Donald Trump. And you just rattled off a great list. Um, I also thought that the New York Times, David Leonhardt, not known as a crazed radical in his uh, piece in today's New York Times, I think it was called something like the people of the United States against Donald Trump just had a, had a little list of here, here are the things, you know, that, that, that what Trump is, has admitted to doing, in addition to what he is alleged to have done, is already so much worse that this, this calculation, this weird sense on, on the part of Democratic uh, Party leaders that somehow it will make the Democrats look bad if they take it seriously just seems so bizarre. And in fact, I think, I think on the contrary, part of what has fueled the, the rise of uh, left-wing candidates, uh, Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, also in terms of the House, in terms of uh, really pushing some of the Democratic Party old guard out of office, is precisely impatience within, among Democratic Party voters for what, what is your problem, guys? You know, we see this egregious string of actions 
uh, that are illegal, that are dangerous by Donald Trump. And you're not really doing anything. You're just talking about it. So, so I do think it's a, it's a real miscalculation, uh, which maybe eventually they'll correct, but I'm, I'm not counting on it. Can I add one point? I, can I add one point about the Clinton <laughs> impeachment? Because sure. Let's not, let's not forget the magnificent role played by the publisher of Hustler magazine, a pornographer offering a bounty of $10,000 for any person who could provide evidence that any of the people bringing impeachment proceedings against the president of the United States had also committed the acts the president was being impeached for. That guy brought down two speakers of the House of Representatives. And I think, um, as you guys know, one of my very favorite uh, touchstones is that the government is not the entirety of the country and civil society has a huge role to play here. I, I feel like we need more Larry Flints out there doing their civic duty of stirring up trouble that the president has to respond to instead of uh, just expecting the fourth estate to, to protect the country for us. Well, speaking of protecting the fourth estate, and I don't want to put you in an awkward position there, Max, but, you know, what the hell. Um, the, 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 a New York Times reporter um, got worlds of crap dropped on him for trying to um, explain what the facts were behind Hunter Biden's activities in Ukraine and Joe Biden's activities in Ukraine. Um, and he was attacked for creating false equivalencies and, and, um, and, you know, how dare he when Don Jr. and Eric and Ivanka are so obviously corrupt and, you know, don't pick on poor Joe Biden. Um, and having said that, I'm going to get, you know, mountains of crap dropped on me for saying this, but. I don't think he was wrong to try to reveal the facts of what's going on behind this. And to be perfectly honest, and here's where I get the crap dropped on me, I don't really think it was appropriate for Hunter Biden to be doing business in Ukraine when his father had the lead on the Ukraine account in the U.S. government. Does that make him the same as Donald Trump or the same as Don Jr. or Eric or Ivanka? No. Um, was it carefully vetted for ethical reasons? Perhaps. I don't, I don't know. But I do think that if there is one thing that the Trump era has taught us, it ought to be that, that, that we should stay out of the gray areas. And I'm just wondering what you think. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, I think, like, look, if there's legitimate questions and if people have done corrupt things, then fine, then they should be investigated. But that that just, what we see here is a whole pattern. Uh, and this, you know, goes back to Benghazi email investigation during the last few years. It was, uh, you know, Devin Nunes, you know, with his Nunes memo, with Uranium One, which was another conspiracy that, conspiracy that we basically, you know, there's a playbook that the Trump Republican Party has been running, which is that to invent and to invent and create a conspiracy and scandal where there's no real there there. 
and maybe there's some appearance of impropriety. You know, they used the fact that Hillary Clinton, had, that the, there was a Clinton Foundation and that foreigners gave money to the Clinton Foundation to say that she was profiting, which just wasn't the case. And so you just have, you know, I think where people's reaction was, was, oh, my God, the way, you know, the what Trump is trying to do here, and I think it was a deliberate ploy, like the whole purpose of him extorting Zelensky was to do two things, was to, one, create this appearance or this scandal that would impact uh, some Joe Biden, who he thought would be his rival or could be his rival. And the second was to uh, actually go and investigate Paul Manafort and say that the uh, exposure of this black ledger that came out in August of 2016, which led to Manafort's departure and provided you know, potentially some of the basis that was uh, for the Mueller investigation uh, investigating him and him going to jail, uh, was all sort of made up and part of uh, a Ukrainian government effort to help the Clinton campaign. And none of this is sort of true or based in any sort of reality, um, and, but yet it's concocted and built up to be a conspiracy that then is just run on. And what we have is two different parties, one party that only basically can run and survive when they have a scandal to 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 latch on to, and that's the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party, that is just like, oh my God, we just want to talk about the the nitty gritty uh, policy. You know, we want to talk about healthcare policy. And what what's happened is that Republicans are desperate to create that. Trump is desperate to create that scandal so he can cause his his opponents corrupt. And it appears that the New York Times is just playing right into that, um, and and creating sort of a, not you know, a false equivalency when, when, you know, there's just sort of no basis in, in comparison. And it's also what is Donald Trump Jr. and all of his kids doing? So, uh, you know, I, I, the way I sort of view this is we have a, uh, you know, the Democrats have been, and this is to sort of take a step back. I think one of the problems, and we, you know, when you mention all those scandals, David, is that there actually hasn't, Trump actually hasn't been prosecuted. There's never been a prosecutor going after Trump. Now, you may think, well, Mueller was the special prosecutor. Well, that's what Democrats thought. Democrats thought that for two years, we we're going to protect this investigation. Mueller was the prosecutor. But what did Mueller do? He said, no, here's my sort of very dry factual report that isn't making a prosecutorial case because I'm not the prosecutor. You Democrats are the prosecutor. Here, I'm giving you this information. You prosecute. Democrats then said, oh, God, we don't really want to prosecute. We thought you were going to solve all our problems. And so I think it's, you know, he's just, no one has sort of gone forth on the path of building the case and prosecuting it in terms of, you know, going going through the process of impeachment. And I think when people like Mitt Romney come out and, and you know, sort of say, you know, that this is, I forget what his actual word use was, but this is sort of beyond the pale or this is horrible or this would go, uh, be very concerning. Uh you know, the key is that Democrats need to force him to make a decision. And most likely, I think Mitt Romney may cave and, and, and side with the Republican Party, but maybe he won't. But you have to put pressure on moderate Republicans to actually say something. And it's very easy for moderate Republicans to be slightly to the right of centrist Democrats who aren't actually speaking up or saying anything. And so I think that's where the big question is, do Democrats unify, have a coherent message, push it forward, and then does it create... Uh, uh, something that puts pressure on moderate Republicans. Now, I don't think Trump's ever going to be removed, but I think, you know, getting a majority in the Senate, if it did get to a trial, if McConnell allowed that to happen or enabled that to happen, I think is is quite possible. Um, and and just one one quick last point on 1998. I think I think Rose is totally right. 
Nancy Pelosi has really internalized 1998. But when you go back and you look at what actually happened, you know, in 98, Republicans lost five seats in the House. They actually drew, uh, they had a 1% victory in the nationwide vote. And then two years later, George W. Bush, running on restoring honor and integrity to the White House, which was largely about Clinton, won. I mean, or depending on how you view the 2000 election, but he became the president. And that was for a case that the country didn't go go, you know, didn't side with. But when you look at 74 and Nixon, you know, there Democrats won two thirds of the, had a two thirds majority in the House in the 74 election. And Jimmy Carter was the only Democrat to become president in, in between the years of 1968 and 1992. So I think we always talk about the political downside of this, which I'm not sure at, at, is really there. And then we never really talk about the political upside for Democrats, which I think Watergate sort of is a more direct comparison. Well, sorry, that's, that's true. That's the politics. Um, but Rosa, I'm going to allow you to um, recant something that you've said repeatedly um, as we start to wrap up this particular episode, and that is um, that we are not in a constitutional crisis. I think that it could be argued, and I know you call it like a constitutional pudding or something like that, but it, that this, there's some- Called the constitutional rot. Rot, yeah, there's constitutional rot. But I I think it actually is is one of those cases, uh, and I don't want to use the frog analogy because that actually is not true. If you put a frog in in water and turn up the heat, it'll jump out. very unfair to frogs. It's unfair. They're smarter than we are. But if you put a whole country in a situation like the one that we're in, and time after time after time, let's use Corey's list of 17 times, or, you know, pick pick the number you want. Use the New York Times list, David Leonhardt's list, or whatever. Our system just doesn't work. The president is above the law. He is beyond prosecution. He knows he is beyond prosecution. He knows that he will be defended by Mitch McConnell. He knows that he will be defended by the Department of Justice and the you know, OLC memo and 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 by Bill Barr if that doesn't work. Um, he knows he can get away with anything, and he's doing it. And, you know, the this Ukraine case is a perfect example that Trump is essentially doing exactly what he did with Russia in 2016, except he's doing it in the open. And he's owning it after a matter of hours. And he's, you know, spinning it in the way that he wants to spin it. And if the president of the United States is above the law and he can't be convicted for anything while in office um, and he can game the system and say, well, you know, I'm the president. If I don't want to give them aid, I won't give them aid and 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 so forth. The system's broken. We, the constitutional crisis is the Constitution doesn't work. Well, I think, but I, I think that's, I think that's right, actually. But I think that when people talk about constitutional crisis, they're usually saying something like, "Oh, the problem is that Donald Trump is is violating the Constitution. That's the constitutional crisis." I think what you have just said points to the the deeper problem, which is that the Constitution is the crisis in a sense. We have a Constitution that does not give us. We we have a an almost 250 year old document, which unsurprisingly 
does not give us the tools that we would need to resolve this problem today. And we keep looking to it and saying, oh, Constitution, help us out here. And the Constitution is not going to help us out here. You know, it, it's, it, it was designed in a different era. It was designed to do different things. Uh, it leaves to the political realm precisely the kinds of issues we're talking about. And, and, we're, and if we keep looking to it to somehow give us a, a route forward, it's not going to do that. You know, and, and I would add, of course, that the, the framers of the American Constitution were a group of guys who, when they found themselves in a similar position vis-a-vis -vis the British government, decided to have a war and start a new government. That's how they dealt with it. You know, so, so, so th there's all kinds of historical ironies here. And no, I am not calling for a civil war, by the way, um, just to preempt that suggestion, but-, but, but I was getting very are, excited. I was, I know, I was hoping I you, you were. were. <laughs> I'm gonna start raising a, a militia. Um, yeah. but, but this bill of particulars in the Declaration of Independence about King George III, you know, what he has done, and he's done this, he's done that, he's, he holds himself above the law, you know, he's corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. And their answer to that was, we tried to work within the system, it didn't work, so guess what, goodbye, we're a new country and we're going to fight you. Um, I don't think that fighting each other is a good solution to our current woes, but I do think that we've got to get over this notion that the Constitution is going to be a particularly useful reference point. You know, that, that this, this crisis will be resolved or not primarily at the ballot box and by the actions of future elected leaders, but it will not be resolved one way or the other by a closer study of particular constitutional clauses. So I'm going to give you the last word here, Corey, in this episode. Um, of course, everybody here will join us for the one on uh, Wednesday as well. But but you are a historian, and what Rosa said resonates with some important historical points. I would go a little further and say that Donald Trump's administration is rapidly becoming a repudiation of every historical standard that we've got, not just those laid out by the Constitution. But, you know, when Andrew Johnson was impeached, it was because he was ignoring laws passed by Congress. Um, Trump has done that and faced no consequences. When Richard Nixon was impeached, it was for obstruction of justice and abuse of power. Donald Trump has done that many times over and has faced no consequences. When Bill Clinton was impeached, it was for lying um, uh, under oath to the Congress about um, a, a sex scandal, and Donald Trump has done that and, and, and much worse. Uh, in fact, he's not just violating the standards set by our system of justice. He's also violating the standards set by past corrupt governments by exceeding them all. He's gone farther, done more, done everything, in fact, that they have done in, in, in the past. And I just think it puts us in new historical territory. And one of the problems we've got is you've got some people, um, and Max made a reference to this, like Speaker Pelosi, who are saying, well, this is like 1999, 1998. Um, and therefore, you know, they're drawing a wrong analogy. Uh, or this is like Watergate, and they draw a wrong analogy. Um, and and I just don't think we're 
we we've got the the framing right to deal with this. But what do you think? So I disagree with uh, Rosa's assertion that the Constitution doesn't give us the tools we need to manage a problem of this magnitude. I ran down to the tidal basin here in Washington this morning to commune with Mr. Jefferson. And so I am reminded of Jefferson's caution that there is no safe- Well, that's not fair, Corey. You can't- Except the people. <laughs> and the problem- You can't bring Mr. Jefferson in on your side. <laughs> <laughs> I so that's so unfair. appeal to him. <laughs> But in this, I, I think he is accurately assessing the circumstances we are in, which is we have plenty of tools to constrain uh, a president who is both a policy and a constitutional danger. What we do not have are political leaders willing to do it. And the reason political leaders aren't willing to do it is that we have not yet driven up the cost to them of not doing it right? Uh, government only acts when they fear that we're going to bounce them out of office if they don't, which takes us back to Max's point. Um, everybody ought to be calling their congresswomen and congressmen and saying, why are you in office if you are not asserting the constitutional prerogative of overseeing a president who has clearly run off the rails and is a danger to the country? You know, or, or the constitutional duty that goes along with that. Well, I, th I, you know, I think we've come to a point of agreement here on this issue and on this case. Obviously, we'll have to watch it um, uh, and see whether it produces an outcome that's different from past cases, which would be one thing. It, if it if it doesn't, and it reaffirms in the mind of Trump and all of those around him that he can do whatever he wants. I think we can expect a very, very ugly 2020 election campaign. And I think we can expect that anyway, but it could be even uglier. Um, in any event, uh, we will explore these things as we go forward. Uh, but we will also focus our attention on the rest of the world, as we will do in the episode of Deep State Radio that comes up on uh, Wednesday and in our uh, Thursday episode. Um, and so I would suggest that you go to the dsrnetwork.com and you um, see the other podcasts we've got, listen to the other things in our feed, become a member, support what we are doing. Um, and uh, we've noticed a recent surge in that. There's a lot more support for um, uh, DSR, even after over two years, two and a quarter years. And for that, we are exceedingly grateful. And uh, we encourage you to encourage your friends to, to, uh, to do the same and join us for these discussions. Uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Max. And uh, everybody join us again for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.